Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. We're very lucky to have as today's guest, Dave McCormick, who's had a really impressive and varied career. He graduated from West Point, where he competed as a varsity wrestler, and after serving in the Gulf War, he earned his PhD here at Princeton in International Relations in 1996. He then took on prominent roles, both in the private sector, most notably as the CEO of Bridgewater, which is the world's largest hedge fund, and in the public sector, where he was the Undersecretary of Treasury and Deputy National Security Advisor under George W. Bush. Now he's running for Senate in Pennsylvania. It's pretty competitive to be considered one of Princeton's most successful graduates, but I would wager that Dave McCormick is one of them. So we're really, really lucky to take some of his valuable time today to chat about his recent book, Superpower and Peril, a battle plan to renew America. So in this conversation, we're going to discuss some lessons learned in leadership from his career, as well as his time in military and in sports, then America's role in the world and American innovation. So with no further ado, I hope you enjoy. Secretary McCormick, welcome to the show. It is a real honor to be able to have you on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I want to kick us off, um, just kind of starting from the very beginning. When I read your book, one of the things that really struck me as kind of an unusual detail is you mentioned several times that you were sort of an average student. You weren't that interested in school at a young age. You were much more interested in sports. And it's sort of amazing looking at your stature now. You have a PhD from Princeton. You were the CEO of the largest hedge fund in the world, and yet I think it sort of struck me as a, as a teaching moment coming here from Princeton's campus. There are things that can really lead you to be successful that aren't just being really, really academically interested from a young age. So from your perspective, what are some of the, the things that led you to, to that level of kind of success, including intellectual success? Yeah, well, thank you. You know, in the, uh, you know, sort of stepping back, my journey uh, through academics and career and everything has been uh, one, one sort of unexpected thing after another. And I think a lot of it comes down to confidence mm. and the lack of confidence that I had and the confidence that I gained over time, largely because of mentors that took an interest in me and, and helped me see possibilities and potential in myself. And, and that was certainly the way it was in high school, where a, a football coach uh, saw it. You know, I was not, not a particularly distinguished football player. In fact, I, I it was a, sort of the bench warmer when I was a sophomore. <laughs> and uh, this coach came out of nowhere and uh, it was was hired and he saw in me promise to be a really good football player. And 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 that that and wrestling kind of defined me and it, it gave me a sense of what it's like to succeed. And uh, I wasn't a great, I wasn't a terrible student, but I wasn't a great student. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then sports really was defining for me at West Point where I was a uh, a more solid student, uh, but an engineer. And, uh, and my intellectual awakening kind of happened uh, uh, first at Columbia because I 
I hurt my knee very badly my senior year of college. And so I took some courses at uh, Princeton, at uh, Columbia rather, and Roger Hillsman, who was a very famous uh, professor who had served President Kennedy and was in the OSS in World War II, took an interest in me. And uh, all of a sudden, I started to see something beyond engineering, mechanical mm. engineering, world affairs. And then that, uh, that uh, opened up even wider at Princeton with, with uh, famous professors like Richard Allman and uh, Aaron Friedberg and others. And they saw, they saw again, something in me I didn't see in myself. And that really helped me fulfill much more of my potential, I think, than I would have otherwise. Yeah. And I really appreciated your emphasis on competitive sports. Again, this is something that when you're talking to sort of more hardcore academics and professors, sometimes really bothers them that there's such an emphasis on sport and competition. Um, in this country, especially in higher education. It, I mean, I was also an athlete, so it really resonated with me talking about how much that helped you. What do you think are some of the lessons that you took from that to um, the leadership roles that you had later on in the military and in business? Yeah. Well, yeah, as someone very, very respectful of, uh, of the great achievements of, of many in academics, I would say sports yeah. and competitive sports is, is much more uh, indicative of what life is really like yeah. than, than what we see in the ivory tower. And so I think <laughs> that sports are a great, uh, a great way to learn about leadership and to learn about resilience and to learn what it takes to achieve uh, real excellence. And, uh, and that was really what, uh, what sports did for me. I, particularly at the college level, one of my uh, coaches at Army at West Point in wrestling was um, a, a man who had won the Olympic gold medal as a wrestler. And seeing, you know, the difference of what it took to be able to compete at his level, and, and that was inspiration for me, the level of dedication. And then, you know, listen, sports, there's nowhere to hide, yeah. particularly wrestling. You know, it's just you and your opponent, and uh, you win or lose, and you have to demonstrate resilience and will and grit and uh, and so those things have really prepared me for life. And, you know, in my toughest days, um, you know, in ranger school in the Army or in Iraq as a veteran or, uh, you know, in the middle of the financial crisis or running a business, in my toughest days, you know, I think I took strength from the challenges uh, that I had as a competitive athlete and, and the resilience that I gained there and knowing that success isn't a straight line. Success is a series of failures yeah. <laughs> from which you learn <laughs> Gain the next level of success. Uh, so I, boy, I feel very grateful that competitive sports have been such a part, important part of my life. And so, moving on to, I mean, foreign policy is kind of one of your main issues. You've worked on it at the highest levels of government. You've been talking about it a lot on the campaign trail. Um, just to kind of kick us off with a very broad question about it. One thing that I noticed working in D.C. is there is sort of a group of people who started off you know, with their interest being in foreign policy and then realized, oh, my gosh, there's so much wrong at home on the domestic front. Um, what's the point of projecting American power if the state of affairs on on home turf is so bad? So what, in your view, is kind of the utility of focusing so much on foreign policy? Is there as much of a distinction between foreign and domestic as a lot of people think? Well, I think the two are, are inextricably linked. America's ability um, to project its influence and power in the world is a direct result of its economic power, its economic strength, its military capability, its will, 
its value system, uh, its ability to project those values. And, um, you know, your question almost uh, for those who say look inward um, because of such problems at home, it, it almost suggests that if we looked inward, the problems of the world wouldn't affect us in some way, which which is absolutely contrary. We've, we've learned the hard way that um, the best way to promote and protect America's interests uh, at home are to project American strength and influence abroad. And I mean that in a very um, humble sense. Hmm. I, when I say project American influence and values, I don't mean um, impose America's values on others, America's influence on others. But I think, um, you know, that I, I still, you know, call me, uh, call me uh, a hopeless romantic. I still believe that America is that shining city on a hill that uh, President Reagan talked about. I believe that America is the best hope for the world and the American values are really the model for the world. And um, and so we have a lot of problems at home, uh, make no mistake. Uh, but I also think that um, we have the most potential uh, to be uh, a source of strength and inspiration for, for others. And, uh, and that's honestly why I've decided to run for political office, because I think having leadership uh, in our government that thinks about America that way and projects those values is really uh, important. So let's go through a couple of kind of specific, I'm going to start with China, although the world's a lot bigger than just that, but we're going to start with China. So let's go through a couple of kind of specific things. I mean, when you talk about, well, foreign and domestic are inextricably linked, the first thing that occurs to me is the opioid epidemic, which is the first thing that you list in your Keystone plan when figuring out how to deal with China. So Talk a little bit about that. What actually can we do about it? And how is that a foreign policy issue as well as a domestic issue? Yeah, it's such a gr great example of the, of the point, uh, because uh, when I run across uh, our uh, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, I'm talking to voters on the ground, whether they're in rural Pennsylvania or in the, the metropolitan areas. Uh, this fentanyl crisis is spiraling out of control. And it's uh, to put things in perspective. Last year in Pennsylvania, we lost, um, through overdose, 5,000 Pennsylvanians uh, to opioids and fentanyl, fentanyl being a big part of that. And uh, you know, to put that in perspective, that's more people than were killed in action in Iraq and Afghanistan over mm. 20 years. 106,000 across uh, the United States last year alone uh, deaths. So this is a huge problem, and that doesn't even account for the economic burden the, you know, the thousands of people in rehab, what it's done to families, communities. Um, it's just, uh, it's been wretched and um, and a huge problem. And it's the direct consequence of, uh, of a number of things, of China um, making basic ingredients for fentanyl and shipping them uh, to Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the direct consequence of Mexican cartels um, assembling those ingredients into fentanyl. And it's the direct consequence of uh, border policies and domestic policies that have made it easier for um, illegal immigrants to cross the border at, uh, at actual border crossings or um, uh, in illegal border crossings that have brought fentanyl into the United States. And once it crosses the border in 48 hours, it's found its way into northeastern United, uh, northeastern part of our country where, where uh, Pennsylvania is. So this is a, an issue where we need to interdict and ban those fentanyl ingredients coming from China. That's a, a huge, what should, in my opinion, be a huge part of our foreign policy and our engagement with China. It's a place where I think we need to put enormous pressure on the cartels 
in Mexico, uh, hopefully in partnership with the Mexican government. And it's a place where I think a set of border policies uh, need to be in place that make it much more difficult and interdict dangerous poison coming into our borders. And then, of course, we need domestic policy at home that uh, that helps uh, deal with the hopelessness that lead people to uh, uh, to rely on opioids and fentanyl and um, and it deals with the the addiction challenges we have. So it's a multifaceted set of policies, but it's a perfect example. Of, you know, if you were sitting in the capital of one of our adversaries tomorrow and you said, hey, if, how, how would we really give America a hard time? You might invent something called fentanyl, find ways to get it into uh, uh, into our country, into the bloodstream of our country uh, and kill 100,000 Americans a year uh, with a growing risk of, uh, of this crisis spiraling out of control. It's a big deal and it needs to be addressed on multiple layers, multiple levels rather yeah, and the way that you discuss that reminds me a lot of the way that people discuss COVID, um, and particularly, I mean, the WHO um, and the issues that we've had, the way that they've dealt with the pandemic in China, also a part of, of your Keystone plan. Um, but it strikes me as kind of emblematic of a larger issue where we have these multinational organizations like the UN and the WHO and the World Bank um, that China plays quite a large part in, and it's a very delicate situation to try to figure out how to both deal with those organizations and not kind of see them to China. So how do you think about striking that balance? Well, it's a perfect example of, of uh, if you think of, of the international institutions, the framework that was created post-World War II, yeah. um, those, those institutions have in many cases evolved in ways, and, and by the way, those were created at the you know with the le- under the leadership of the United States, with an explicit set of goals to benefit the world, but also as a as a way of promoting uh, American values and America's interest, and um, and in many of those cases uh, we've lost the plot. <laughs> we've <laughs> lost the plot. The WHO is the perfect example. So here we have the biggest health crisis in the history of the world, millions of people dying. It clearly unequivocally emanates from China. It clearly emanates from Wuhan, where there also happens to be a lab that does a lot of experimentation around deadly viruses. And uh, who knows the intentionality? I'm not making any claim uh, that this was China intentionally did something uh, with uh, COVID. What I am saying is there's clearly, and that this is clearly where the uh, COVID originated from, and the, in combating COVID, we need to get to the root cause of how this happened. And China uh, was essentially uh, refused to provide any transparency and to uh, give any insight into how the, the virus was created and where it came from and how it uh, was able to spread. And the WHO did its bidding um, and played no role in trying to create that transparency or accountability. That uh, was the obvious mission and ex expectation of the World Health Organization. And so um, I could point to a number of other institutions that have similarly lost their path. And so part of uh, my agenda, my keystone agenda for uh, America, is is to essentially look uh, within the context of U.S.-China relations, but more broadly, at a number of these institutions and ask, ask ourselves how they need to be retooled, um, reformed, in some cases possibly eliminated, because they've lost their uh, purpose and they certainly aren't fulfilling their original mission. So you've had 
experience dealing with China um, from two very different spheres, from Bridgewater, uh, where you've talked about having to deal with issues like IP theft and Chinese investment, and also from your role in government. From each of those, what would you say is, is the greatest thing that you learned or experienced about our, our current issues with China? Yeah, well, I think, you know, you have to step back and say and acknowledge that uh, that America, and it was bipartisan, really, made a bet uh, 30 years ago relating to China, 35 years ago, which is which was to say, if we brought China into the global economy, if we encouraged that, reaffirmed it with WTO accession, with permanent normal trade relations and so forth, that we would um, create a, a global trading environment where there would be free and fair trade, where they, where China's markets would open, um, America would benefit from doing commerce with China, benefit from uh, uh, China doing business with America, um, that China would abide by the rules in terms of uh, uh, intellectual property protections and so forth. And, and, and what happened is over time, there's been a clear divergence um, where China hasn't followed the rules and China hasn't lived up to the expectations that went into that original calculus. And so increasingly, U.S. economic interests and China's economic interests have diverged. Even though there's benefits of that economic relationship, those benefits have been disproportionate uh, to China and the standards by which China's operated have not been consistent with the promise. But those interests diverged much more dramatically when President Xi came into power and in, I guess it was 2000 and, uh, 2012. And we see now uh, that China's uh, vision for its future, Xi's vision, is one of China being a techno-authoritarian regime that displaces America as the primary superpower. That is the vision. That's not um, something I'm speculating on. That's in his speeches. And, and Xi lays out the 20 most important technologies in the world and says China must be the leader in all of these technologies. And so we now have a growing divergence where we have to fundamentally rethink um, our uh, economic relationship and our national security relationship with China. And so that's why in my, uh, in my, in my book and as Superpower in Peril and in uh, my Keystone Agenda uh, for America, I essentially lay out how we should deal with China. And, and what I say is we should reduce our dependency on China in critical sectors like semiconductors and pharmaceuticals, things that matter are at the core of America's economic strength. We can't be dependent on China and, and China's supply chains. And simultaneously, and, and we can't trust that they won't steal the intellectual property. And simultaneously, we cannot invest and let American companies or investors invest in China in a way that is supporting the growth of its military, this techno-authoritarian regime, the, the Chinese Communist Party. And that's a stark departure uh, from the policies we've had uh, in the preceding decades. And it's something, it's something I think needs to happen uh, immediately. So when it comes to decoupling from China, um, one of the immediate challenges that occurs to me is the debt. And it's sort of crazy because I remember people freaking out about how much debt we owed China over a decade ago when I was in middle school. And no one really did anything about it. It's been over a decade. There's not, I mean, our economy hasn't exactly collapsed yet, but there is still kind of worry about it as tensions between the U.S. and China continue to escalate. Is that something that we should be worried about? Well, I think um, uh, I'd say I'd make a couple of uh, reflections on that. First, our debt 
situation in America is uh, increasingly becoming unsustainable. We have $34 trillion of debt. Our interest payment on our debt alone is a trillion dollars a year. Um, I looked I, I did uh, look this up the other day just to get a sense of it <laughs> physically. Um, a trillion dollars a year is 168 40-foot trailers filled to the top of $100 bills. Just to put this in perspective, it's the enormity of, of our debt and just the interest payments on the debt is truly unsustainable. And so um, as a matter of public policy, we've got to rein in discretionary spending. Uh, we've got to, um, in my opinion, um, pull back on many of these excessive spending programs that have gone into place in recent years of trillions of dollars of incremental spending and subsidization. Uh, and we need to... Uh, and we, we need to actually deal with the fundamental drivers of our debt problem. And we need to have pro-growth economic policies that um, stimulate growth, which is part of the, the way you deal with the debt. So I think our kids are, are not going to forgive us for uh, uh, the burden we're leaving to them. And people have been saying that for years, but the scope and scale of it is uh, is clearly reaching a tipping point. Now, there's, there's two other observations I'd make, though. One is that uh, because we've issued so much debt, um, others have had to buy debt, uh, foreign uh, countries around the world, as you said, China, Japan, and many others. And we're now seeing, as the fiscal situation in America becomes more precarious, we're seeing those foreign buyers pull back. And we've seen that in recent treasury auctions, and that's a, that's a real problem. Uh, so it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a canary in the coal mine of our fiscal situation being a bit unsustainable. Um, the holders of that debt, um, you know, it's a symbiotic relationship with America because it's in you know, it's in nobody's interest for America to default on that debt, uh, not America's interest, not the holders of that debt. So uh, so it's uh, I think the much more worrisome thing is that future purchases of debt um, are, are, are appear to be trailing off. But I'll say a final thing that may, may seem in contradiction to this, which is when you think of a global economy, you're not thinking about it in absolute terms. You're thinking about it compared to everybody else. And uh, and America's economy with all the challenges it has, and it has many challenges, including political dysfunction in terms of dealing with policy. But the American economy still stands out compared to all the others. So if you could have our economy or China's economy, China's economy is in deep trouble. You'd have our economy. If you could have us or Europe, you'd pick us. If you could have us or Japan, you'd pick uh, uh, America. And so with all of our challenges, our economy still is fundamentally quite strong. But the most important thing about the American economy is its resilience, using that mm -hmm. word we used earlier, and its capacity to self-correct. And so um, uh, that's why I'm bullish that if we uh, get the right kind of leadership and policies in place, um, our economic outlook is, is quite good. Uh, we just have to get the right leaders and right policies in place. Yeah, that kind of leads me pretty naturally. I'll ask one more China question and then we'll move on to everyone else. But um, I, I wonder, I mean, at Bridgewater, you had experience working with looking at Chinese companies. Um, and there's a lot of buzz right now, as you say, about domestic, uh, domestic economic issues within China, especially things like the housing market and, you know, the way that their system kind of underwrites um, and picks winners in their economy. Kind of from your personal experience working with and looking at those companies, what would you say about that? Is, is there a real difference when you're dealing with Chinese companies versus American companies? Yeah, um, why well, I, I didn't answer that question last time. I, I now realize. Um, yeah, the, <laughs> the, the, the thing I learned in dealing with Chinese when I was in the government was they, did, they didn't follow the rules. 
Uh, you know, it was, it was, <laughs> it was clear even in the 2008, 2009 timeframe, when I was in the government um, dealing with the Chinese, that they were diverging from their obligations. And as the point I made earlier, that just got a lot worse. Um, in, in, in dealing with uh, China from the private sector perspective, Bridgewater um, was an investor in China, relatively modest, re relatively modest investor. Um, but um, the uh, the thing that uh, you see is this economy is is very much um, a state controlled economy. Hmm. Um, state, you know, state run enterprises are part of the, the big investors in the technology sector and the, and the military sector. And that creates all sorts of uh, distortions from a, from a market perspective. And so that is, um, uh, so, so that is part of the reason that China is unable to respond to some of these economic factors hmm. uh, because the private, you know, capitalism is not imposing a discipline on many of those companies that it imposes uh, in the United States. And that's why you see um, these government subsidized firms, these state-owned enterprises that, you know, in some ways are on life support, but continue because they don't have to pay the uh, actual market-driven cost of capital. They're subsidized, uh, they're just, and they distort the economy in a certain number of ways. That is why um, uh, China doesn't have the resilience and the ability to respond to changes in the global economy and domestic economy the way that the United States does. And a good example of that was COVID. So uh, the way that uh, the American economy came through COVID was in large part just indicative of the American economy in general, which it, it deals with crisis and disruption in a very fluid and uh, dynamic way. And there was government involvement and so forth, but not nearly to the degree of, of China. And China and the rest of the world have been much slower to recover from COVID because of uh, because of those dynamics. Hmm. All right. So moving on, rest of the world. Um, deterrence. This is an issue that you talk a lot about in your book and in interviews. Um, and we've had in the past four years, a little less than four years, um, three kind of pretty major things happen in the world. Um, pulling out of Afghanistan, Ukraine, and Gaza. So I'm going to start with Ukraine. Um, but just to put it in very blunt terms, was there anything America could have done to prevent that from happening? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Because, you know, American strength in the world is um, is a source of is a stabilizing force. And when and adversaries around the world think America is weak, um, uh, ham handed, slow to respond that encourages aggression. And, you know, I, I think it is important to mention Afghanistan before I go to Ukraine, because Afghanistan laid a predicate. And it was one of the reasons I got involved politically. It was such an incompetent, one can debate intellectually whether we should have been stayed in Afghanistan or not. I'm not making that point. When we decided to withdraw from Afghanistan, the incompetent way that that uh, happened, the surprise that it presented to our allies, the Afghani supporters falling out of the wheel wells of our jet, 13 uh, uh, service members being killed. It was a debacle. And it, it, it sent a signal to the world that, wait a second, that's not the America we know. The same was true with Ukraine, where I think uh, had the messages been clear, I think it's less likely that Putin would have invaded. Uh, President Biden approved the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which was certainly an indication to uh, Russia, that the consequences of, uh, of its uh, purported aggression were, were not going to be economically biting. 
Um, second, when the actual uh, attacks happened, what was the first response to the Biden administration to send a plane to get to help Zelensky escape, as opposed to you know, stand by Ukraine with the kind of military support it needed right out of the gate, not dribs and drabs of military support over time, but the support it needed right in the fight. You know, as a soldier, I understand this. Mm. You, you don't, you know, when you're in the middle of a firefight, you don't need the weapons three months later. You need the weapons now. You need the support now when the fight is and when you're at the 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 the, the beginning and the and the core of the fight. And so at every step along the way, I think the Biden administration has been slow to respond. And now the um, support of the American people is understandably slipping away. And uh, I think the final failure is the inability to envision, the inability to project, the inability to, to lay out how this ends. So uh, America is tired of endless wars. Uh, 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 to our benefit, we're not sending American soldiers into Ukraine, which I would not support. But we're giving military support. But the president's failed to lay out how this additional incremental spending of billions of American taxpayer dollars at a time when our economy is struggling, some of that money going to your Ukrainian bureaucrats as opposed to uh, military uh, weaponry. The, the president's failed to lay out how this will lead to some sort of peaceful end to the to the conflict. And so I think it's a it's a terribly tragic situation because uh, we, you know, having Putin's aggression successful in Europe. I think runs counter to America's interests. I think it sends a dangerous signal to China, but uh, but the president's failed to execute this war in a way that I think either could have deterred it in the first place, or uh, or or made it much more effective on the part of the Ukrainians. Same question, Gaza. Well, uh, listen, Gaza is tragic. I I uh, traveled with my wife uh, to Israel um, right after the New Year. We walked mm. through Kafar Azah, which was one of the communities where a hundred people were butchered. We saw the infamous uh, videotape taken from the body cams of the terrorists. I mean, the, the horrific, barbaric evil uh, on that day cannot be, uh, you know, it's, it's unforgettable. And it was uh, not just directed at Israel. That was directed at the West. Um, and the my main takeaway from this is, of, of course, we need to support Israel in its, uh, in its efforts uh, to eliminate uh, Hamas. But that the original sin in all of this was uh, the appeasement of Iran. And, uh, you know, it, be, it really begins with the 2015 deal that uh, President Biden did with Iran, uh, the nuclear deal. Uh, uh, Joe Biden supported that, of course, and the deciding vote on it was my opponent in my Senate race, Bob Casey. And that essentially gave Iran more than $100 billion of resources, which it is clearly used to underwrite terror throughout the Middle East. Hamas, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, the Houthis, all of these are Iranian proxies that are um, conducting terrorist operations around the Middle East, and certainly they're not limited in their ambition to the Middle East. And so Iran's the original sin, and um, and this is where I do hold President Biden and Senator Casey and others accountable, because the strategy should have been to call out Iran for what it is, which is a source of evil and uh, terrorist uh, support, and to economically strangle its ability to support uh, terrorist proxies. And uh, and, and and frankly, the uh, both the uh, Obama administration and the Biden administration have failed at that uh, important mission. It's sort of funny because I think Biden has also been getting tons of flack from the far left on his handling of Israel. And it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. I wonder from your from your own experience, having been a soldier, what your assessment is of 
the way things are going to pan out for Israel in this conflict? Yeah, boy, it's, uh, I mean, I, I always try to bring it back to, to uh, myself. If I was in Pennsylvania and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, thousands of terrorists came up across the border from New Jersey and, uh, and, and killed, um, you know, killed women and children in a barbaric way, I, I wouldn't be able to uh, live in a way that uh, that that group could, you know, continue to exist 600 meters from my, you know, from my home and put put our our lives at risk every day. So I'm wholeheartedly in support of Israel's necessary mission of of destroying the Hamas and its ability to ever inflict that kind of uh, evil on Israel. It's a very tough military operation. Hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a military man. I know how tough it is because urban warfare, uh, block by block, street by street, building by building, room by room is incredibly difficult. It's the most difficult mission. American troops figure that out in Fallujah and other places. But then imagine an entire another city underneath the ground hmm. uh, with an incredibly expansive tunnel network. So it's a very tough mission. It's going to have to be conducted. I have a lot of confidence in Israel is a democracy to determine how best to do that. And the Israeli military is, a, you know, excellent military organization. And I, when I was in Israel, I had the chance to sort of see some of it up, up close and personal. We sat in with a drone unit and uh, talked to their leadership and actually watched them conduct a mission where they were going through double authentication to make sure that drone targets were truly terrorists. And they wouldn't even rely on a single piece of intel. It had to be multiple sources of intel. So I believe they're conducting uh, this war in a way that is both reflective of, you know, their responsibilities under international law and the laws of war, but also in a way that's adding extra um, extra measures to try to ensure that uh, that the uh, that the military efforts are targeted against the terrorists. That's made more difficult by the fact that Hamas is integrated itself into the civilian population, which is makes it really tricky. Mm -hmm. um, Hamas has has has. Uh, you know, stood in the way of humanitarian assistance coming to innocent civilians and, and frankly has blocked those humanitarian corridors. So it's a very tough situation, but I, you know, I have a lot of confidence Israel will manage its way through it. The way that this has blown up on American university campuses um, has caused massive na nationwide shock. Um, and particularly, I mean, you are running in Pennsylvania, you're a, a born and raised Pennsylvania, and the University of Pennsylvania, which isn't a state school, but still, um, just its president just had to step down because of the way that they've handled all of this kind of stuff. Again, it's not a state school, so there's not, I understand that there's not a way you can just jump in and say, no, like, stop doing this. But yeah. um, are there ways in which uh, it's possible to hold universities accountable or to change the way that they deal with the way that this is discussed on campus? Yeah, well, um, you know, across campuses, I think in many places we've seen kids, you know, marching, kids calling for genocide uh, of, of, of Israelis. Um, in many places, including the University of Pennsylvania, we've had Jewish students hiding in their dormitory rooms because they didn't feel safe walking across campuses. And you say to yourself, how could that be? How is that possible? And then you watch those three university presidents testifying and you go, oh, that's how it's possible, mm -hmm. because there's a lack of moral clarity, a lack of appreciation, a lack of the importance of an institution creating an environment where 
um, all of its students uh, feel safe. And um, in, in that particular instance, it was like the, um, the ideology of the oppressed versus the oppressors has sort of hijacked their brains and they had lost the basic thread of decency and, and, the, and morality and, and the difference between right and wrong. And so I had called for Liz McGill's uh, resignation long before that testimony because I was watching this and seeing that she was really not exercising any leadership at all. And her response had been very mealy-mouthed and, um, and I thought not, not reflective of the kind of leadership that was required. Now, what can, the, what can a senator do? What can uh, um, our leaders do? Well, you know, there's a huge part of uh, of our universities that are underwritten, particularly private universities, by the fact that their endowments are um, treated as uh, tax-free, um, and so uh, you know that's questionable. Um, these have these enormous endowments, and if they're going to be in places which are um, are are perpetrating a set of values or inconsistent with 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 what's reasonable, inconsistent with the kind of moral leadership we require. That should be called into question. The same with federal grants. So I think the financial support that these universities get is, is maybe a starting point. And I, I want to be clear on this. I'm not advocating a particular political position. I'm not advocating conservative versus liberal. I'm, I'm advocating universities being a place where people can truly exchange ideas and that all ideas um, or that all reasonable ideas are met with uh, an openness. And that's that's cl clearly not uh, clearly not happened. And I think it's it's a real tragedy. And I think this was one of those situations where, man, it's, you know, as you know, I'm a graduate of Princeton. I'm very proud to have been at Princeton and loved it. But but most universities, all you know, not all, but most have, have been sort of the, the shown to uh, be the uh, uh, be the king without clothes uh, in this uh, in this situation. And I think it's a it's a moment for real reflection among the trustees and the leadership of these universities. So I want to ask a little bit about um, innovation, because that is something that you really emphasize in your book. Um, and I think you're totally right. It's really important. And it's one of the things that really sets America apart. So you talk about the importance for innovation, you know, in these sectors of military and government. These are some of the most kind of bureaucratic, famously bureaucratic sectors that there are. So how do you think about how to encourage innovation in those industries? You know, it's, it's uh, if you think about throughout America's short history, because America is relatively young in, in the history of, uh, of other countries, um, we have been unique in our capacity to innovate in radical ways that have, have really changed the world. The PC was uh, was a really good example of this. Um, nuclear uh, fission, another, um, you know, space travel, satellites. Uh, you go back through through history, America has been at the forefront. And I don't think that's an accident. I think that has a lot to do with the, the idea that it was a nation conceived with the notion of individual liberty and freedom being the organizing mechanism for America. And that sense of individualism um, has led and, and that sense that uh, the private sector, not the government, should govern the allocation of capital um, and that merit, merit should dictate. Uh, who gets that capital? Merit should dictate those ideas. And 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 the act, the idea that failure is an embedded part of American society and an embedded part of our capital system, those are all the basic building blocks that have led to America being an innovation machine. And so the the the, the first thing we need to do is not screw that up, not have a government that's uh, you know becoming more and more socialist and where the government's allocating capital 
disproportionately, um, not have a place where individual freedom is, is increasingly restricted. Not, I, I talk to businesses across Pennsylvania, whether it's dairy farmers or manufacturers or beauty salons, and the degree to which the government is more and more involved in regulating is becoming uh, uh, omnipresent. And it's a, it's a huge problem for most businesses. So that's the core. Let's not lose the thing that made us special. That's the starting point. And then some of these new technologies um, are really transcendent. These new technologies um, are not military technologies or civilian technologies. They are at the intersection of all those things. Artificial intelligence is mm. going to fundamentally change the, the, the path to warfare. It's also highly dependent on data. Data is like the new strategic um, the new strategic uh, steel bar that's going to drive innovation. So China's got a huge data advantage because of how much data it has and centralized control. So the government's going to have to figure out ways to bring our private sector uh, partners uh, into the mix with, uh, with, with DOD to, to focus on those technologies that are going to be critical. And, and the book, Superpower and Peril, I lay out a path to do that which tries to bring private sector um, principles to how the government works with the private sector to make sure there's the adequate capital to invest in these areas that have enormous uh, out of uh, order of magnitude consequences for America. And the private markets may not uh, put enough capital there on their own because um, the investment opportunity may be highly risky but the benefit for society is, is very large. So I, I make a, a bunch of suggestions on how to bring that kind of private sector thinking into in our innovation policy for these most critical technologies. This has been really interesting. I'm aware that, that you have somewhere else to be and we're almost out of time, but I need to ask the traditional final question for Princeton alums. Yeah. Favorite memory or most important lesson learned from your time at this university? Yeah, well, I have so many uh, great memories, but um, <laughs> but let me say two real quickly. Um, you know, as I said, there was a I, I wasn't I wasn't academically that confident when I first came to Princeton, and uh, a couple of professors really changed my life. One of them was Aaron Friedberg, who I mentioned. The other was Dick Allman, and Dick was uh, an elderly gentleman. And and uh, when I gave him my first paper, he um, you know I got a I got a comment back. He would grade it in in leaded pencil. And then I don't know, I think it had a B on top of it. But when you go through the uh, the text, it had A, B in little marks, C, D, all the way through the alphabet. And then when you go through the alphabet at the end of the paper, it'd be double A, double B. And then you got to the end of the paper and there was a there was a set of typed comments that were as long as the paper itself <laughs> about the quality of the writing, the quality of the thinking. And it was such a um it was such a lesson in in care, a lesson in investment. I, I don't know how how much he did that with other people, but he certainly invested in me as a I think had an affinity for former military officers, and and through him, I gained I became a much better writer. I gained my intellectual confidence. Um, he encouraged me eventually to apply for the PhD program, which I did, and and I was and was successful. He became my squash partner, um, and by the way, he is a he was a staunch Democrat and uh, uh, and would have been opposed to uh, certainly some of my political views then, and I suspect many of my political views now. But the the dearest, most committed um, friend and mentor and professor. And so the less, I mean, I, you changed my life. Uh, you know, there's been a handful of people in in my life that have made all the difference, and Dick Allman was one of them. 
uh, and it was it was really special. And I I think there's probably a lot of Princeton uh, graduates who could point to somebody like that who changed their who changed their life. And uh, and I'm uh, will be forever grateful for that. All right. Well, I think we're releasing you just in time for your next thing. But thank you so much. This has been really really fascinating. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. Nice to talk to you. Well, there you have it, Madisonians, Secretary Dave McCormick on his new book, Superpower in Peril. It's linked in the show notes if you want to check it out. And if you enjoyed this episode, you should also visit our website, jmp.princeton.edu, because you can find not only all of the old episodes of this podcast, but also all of our upcoming events, all of the recordings of previous events we've had throughout the year. You can join our mailing list. And you can find out more about what we do here on Princeton's campus. Another great way to follow us is via social media on Twitter at Madison Program, as well as on Instagram and Facebook. And finally, we really appreciate if you would like, comment, and subscribe. It really does make a big difference to us. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. And I'm so excited to see you again next time here on Madison's Notes. Madison's Notes.